Well, hello, hello, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zafiro, and after a brief hiatus due to illness, we are back. Uh, This is going to be an interesting week because we're going to drop three episodes in one week since we missed two weeks uh, and get ourselves back on track. Uh, This episode is our feature episode for the month of January, and so we're going to have a long conversation with Dana King, the author of the Penn's River series, uh, and uh, his most current book in that series uh, is 10-7, and we're going to talk about that as well. Uh, I want to say thanks for sticking with me through through the short drought. Uh, Sometimes uh, when you're a one-man show, uh, things can get a little tricky when you get... uh, pretty sick so i am feeling better and i am back at it and uh this will be an exciting uh binge week for wrong place right crime Uh, before we get to dana king though let's talk about our sponsor wrong place right crime is sponsored by down and out books and here to talk about what's going on uh, there is the chief editor and publisher eric campbell hi frank This is Eric from Down and Out Books with two new titles for your listeners. The hardest working man in noir, Eric Beatner, is back. He hits a home run this month with a book called All the Way Down. I think this may be his best book yet. Meg Gardner says it best. All the Way Down is fast and fierce like a guitar solo that hits all the sharpest notes. For fans of the police procedural comes 10-7 by Dana King. It's a story about seemingly random killing and a dead cop resulting in just another week at Penn's River. Eric Pruitt calls it a propulsive mystery thriller that showcases Dana's ear for dialogue, pinch it for wry humor, and mastery of the police procedural, all while his fingers are firmly on the pulse of America's Rust Belt. Your listeners can find out more at downandoutbooks.com. Thanks a million for having me on the show, man. Well, thank you, Eric. Uh, great publisher. If you like gritty crime fiction, I'm proud to be uh, in their stable and have a number of projects uh, uh, going. There are some really great writers uh, that I am proud to be uh, uh, in the company of. One of them is our guest for this episode, Dana King. So without further ado, let's get to know Dana King. Well, welcome to the show, Dana. Frank, thanks for having me. It's a treat to be here. So uh, a little background for uh, some of the listeners. You and I first met at uh, BoucherCon in Tampa, St. Petersburg, actually, I guess, uh, last September. Uh, And I told you then about uh, a blog post that you had written that really had an impact on me. Do you remember the blog post I'm referring to? You know, to be honest with you, Frank, I remember you mentioning it. But I don't remember how drunk I was when you mentioned it, so I'm not exactly sure which blog post you're talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about a blog post that you made that uh, had to do with uh, your first voucher con and how someone there treated you. Does it? Does that ring a bell? Oh, the the famous Scott Phillips story. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Could you recount that for those who uh, haven't uh, read your blog? I'll be happy to, and, and I love this story and. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Scott Phillips uh, wrote is a wonderful writer, wrote, wrote probably best known for writing the book The Ice Harvest, which was made into a wonderful movie that my wife bought me for Christmas this year, actually, starring uh, John Cusack, Billy Bob Thornton. Anyhow, uh, I was at my first voucher con in Baltimore in 2008. And as a lot of writers are, I'm an introvert, and it's difficult for me to walk up to people and meet them if I already know them. 
So I'm wandering through the halls, and one of the few people I actually knew, Peter Rosofsky, um, asked me if I was having a good time. And I said, well, sort of. The panels are okay, but I don't really know anybody. So we just got to go up and talk to them. And he stood there looking at the crowd as they walked by, and he said, here, do you know Scott Phillips? I said, well, I know who he is. And Peter calls over, Scott, come here. So Scott comes wandering right over, and Peter says, Scott, this is a friend of mine, Dana King. Dana, this is Scott Phillips. He wrote The Ice Harvest. And Scott shakes my hand, and we talked for a couple, three minutes. It was very nice. And then Scott had to go to a panel. And he, he left, and then Peter looks at me and goes, okay, now you know Scott Phillips. So fast forward a year, and BoucherCon is in Indianapolis. And I'm not a whole lot better off than I was last year as far as knowing people. I don't see anybody. Know. I'm kind of hanging out at the bar, hoping I get myself half invited into a conversation. And I see Scott Phillips with a small group of people. So I kind of hang close by, hoping I could find some excuse to say something, kind of remind that we met last year. And the group stands up from the table, and Scott kind of looks over and sees me sitting, standing there. He goes, Dana, how are you? Hey, look, we're going to get something to eat. You want to come? And that kind of put my voucher con stuff at rest. I mean, that was it was not only did it make me feel like, okay, now people know who you are. You can talk to people here. But, you know, Scott Phillips is, is a no-name, and he was just such a nice guy about it. He remembered me and made sure I got a chance to come with him if I wasn't standing by myself. And to me, that was the perfect summing up of how, how BoucherCon kind of sucks you in, how you make your little contacts, and after a while, now I probably have 100 people I know from, from having met them at BoucherCon. I can walk up to and I feel very comfortable there, but Scott was the first one like that. Well, BoucherCon in St. Petersburg this last September was my first BoucherCon, and so I would say you very much paid it forward uh, because although I, I, I knew a lot of people like, you know, virtually like we do uh, via email and other, other you know, tw Twitter and Facebook and all that, uh, you know, I really didn't know a whole lot of people in person. And I bumped into you and uh, uh, I can't remember who introduced us. It was somebody. We Terrence McCauley. That's Terrence McCauley. Yep. As soon as he introduced introduced me to to you, I was like, ah, I just read this guy's blog article that did exactly what I was going through, and and then you did exactly what Scott Phillips did. You and Terrence did. You guys invited me to dinner, uh, and uh, had a great night. And my voucher con was off to a rip roar and start, and it was a great time. But uh, uh, part of that's because of how it started. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's what that's what voucher con is for. I mean, I still, I mean, you see me. I still go to as many panels as I can. I still take notes in panels. And I come back and I type them up and I actually put them into my blog as little things that I remembered that are, are worth doing for me. But as time has gone on, BoucherCon for me has become much less an educational type thing at that level. But it's become a, a, um, a social event. I don't, mean, I don't mean it in the I go there to network. No, I go there to see my friends. These are people I only see once a year. And it's the one of the few times where you get a group of writers to actually talk about writing if you catch them in, in the right venue or write about the kinds of things they write about or why they write what they write. And I just I just look forward to it so much. I actually try to go a day early every year now and catch somebody for dinner and just, you know, whatever whatever it is I can do. It, it's the highlight of my year. There's definitely a feeling there um, that, at least for in, in my experience, that, that you're, you're with your tribe. Uh, it's, it's one of the only one of only two places I've ever felt like completely at ease. Uh, completely myself, I guess, or, or however you want to put it. And uh, uh, it, definitely a lot of that happens, though, because people are reaching out like what you did. It's it, uh, and, and one of the things, and like you mentioned, I, I try to do that now, particularly for somebody when I find that somebody hasn't been to a, a voucher con before, because I remember what people like Peter Rosofsky, 
John McFetridge, Declan Burke, and Scott Phillips did for me my first couple of voucher cons. And I still remember how that felt. So if I see somebody who's new and doesn't look like they're a complete jerk, then I do what I can to kind of, you know, bring them into the fold. You know, it's kind of fateful that we actually came across each other because uh, we have quite a bit in, in, in common, it would seem. Um, maybe not in our, our other life careers, although we both work for the government in one fashion or another. You're, you're one, one step removed from working for the government, but still. Um, but uh, we both uh, got some early stories published by Big Daddy Thug, Todd Robinson. Yep, Todd, Todd's the man. Probably the best editor I've worked with because of all of, you know things I've sent out to different places, books or short stories. Uh, the short story I sent to Todd it was the first story I ever sold, and he said I like this, but I don't like the ending. But instead of doing what a lot of people do is you know telling you they like it, they don't like the ending, they're not going to take it. Todd said, "What if you tried something like this?" And I didn't do what he suggested, but I did. I took what he suggested as an idea to run with, and. When I sent it back to him, he sent me back a real nice note that said, oh, yeah, this this is much better now. And not only did he run it in Thuglet, he was nice enough to put it in the uh, anthology he used to do. So I was one of the Thuglet top stories that year. And, of course, that was the last one of those he did. So it's probably my fault. That's what he gets for having been. <laughs> yeah, he, he ran my story, uh, Rescuing Isaac, on Thuglet.com. And then uh, uh, when he got that deal with Kensington to do that those anthologies, uh, that was a pretty big deal. <laughs> to have a story in a, in a you know, anthology published by a, a major New York publisher. It's it pretty cool. I was pretty proud. I, I know you know how that feels. Oh, yeah. In, in fact, when uh, when I got the check, I mean, it, it was a small, I think it was like $25, because that was really, all t- Todd probably lost money on the deal when you get that when you get down to the bottom of it. But uh, my wife said, well, you're going to hang out in a wall or you're going to cash it? I said, well, thanks to the miracle of computers, I get to scan it and then cash it and still hang it on. <laughs> Uh, well, you hung it on the wall, though, right? Oh, yeah. So uh, in addition to the Big Daddy Thug connection, uh, both of us write uh, police procedurals. Yes. And uh, I guess that's where I'd like to start with you there is uh, the Penns River uh, series. Uh, that's a, a, got a book drop in here in January. Uh, right about, what's the drop date on that? 21st. Uh, and that is, that's the fourth one, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So before you talk about 10-7 specifically, what, what is Penn's River? What is the setting and, and who are the main characters? It, it's ensemble, right? Yes. Yes, very much. Um, Penn's River is a fictional amalgam, for lack of a better word, of three small western Pennsylvania cities where I was born and grew up. I was born in a hospital in one of the towns, and that hospital is no longer a hospital. It's an urgent care clinic, and they do some tests there. Uh, my parents took me home to a small apartment in the one of the other of the three towns, and that has since burned to the ground and been replaced by an empty lot. Uh, they then moved us out to the third town, the, the most rural of the three, and we lived there until I moved away to the Army. In fact, my parents lived there from 1960 until my father passed in November of last year. So that kind of became home base, and, and because the... Um, the town where I grew up in was kind of rural, and out past that was definitely rural. And the other two little towns were, again, small towns, sort of urban. Both of them had been mill towns. 
uh, it made perfect sense for me, I thought, to kind of combine the three into one town because then I could have my cops handle things that were not only somewhat out in the country, but were also down in the city. And there's a small Penn State campus there, so there's college kids in town. So a, a nice thing about those three little towns allowed me to kind of touch bases that a lot of writers don't get to do if they write a series in a set location because there's not enough variety in the things that happen there. These little towns did, and it's worked out real well for me. And Penn's River, the fictional setting, is roughly how far outside of Pittsburgh? It's about 20 miles up the Allegheny River from Pittsburgh. Okay, so if you needed to go to Pittsburgh for some reason, or get, you, you, there's no problem there. No, in fact, in, in two of the books, there are actually scenes, in fact, the third book, Resurrection Mall, a good chunk of the latter part of the middle part of the book leading towards the end and setting up the ending takes place in Pittsburgh where they're looking for a guy. And a lot of it takes place there. Well, I want to talk about 10-7, but I guess uh, maybe we can push pause on that for a second because uh, uh, Pittsburgh is an interesting city. Um, I spent some time there. You grew up there. It, it is one of those cities that it's it's not a cardboard cutout city. It very much has a personality um, and very much has its its uh, quirks and, and and so forth. I mean, all the bridges. I mean, there's like something like 400 bridges or something like that in 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 Pittsburgh. And then there's 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 this uh, real sense of pride in that city, um, and it, it's a real cool kind of pride too. It's that kind of pride that says, "Hey, I'm proud of my hometown. I'm proud of my city. I'm proud of the people. I'm proud of what, who we are." And while you're here, I want to make sure you have a great time, and you really see why it is I'm so proud of this city. It's not that, you know, we're great and you suck kind of pride. It's it's just a really neat pride. And, it, um, you know, I, I saw it manifested in the cops that I was teaching. And I was really shocked to find out that Pittsburgh police officers were making on average about 20 grand less than the cops who work in the uh, Penns River sort of locations just up the road. Uh, yet they continue to work in Pittsburgh where they're getting their asses handed to them in terms of calls for service. So why do you do that, right? It's got to be pride and love of city. There's really no other reason. Um, so uh, I guess my question after that very long <laughs> input <laughs> intro that I'll probably have to cut <laughs> is, it, 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 does this mesh with your experience living in Pittsburgh? And uh, were there things about that city that you still think of as very uniquely uh, Pittsburgh-y. Oh, yeah. I mean, P P Pittsburgh in that area, to me, will always be home. Um, uh, my wife used to comment. Um, we used to go back, to, when my, when, as my parents' health started to decline, we used to go back and see them every six to eight weeks and spend a weekend up there and make sure they were okay and do little things around the house for them. And uh, and my wife commented that when we would when we'd be planning those weekends, I would refer to the trip back to Pittsburgh as going home. And we were in Pittsburgh and we were coming back to Maryland, where I've lived most of the last 30 years. Um, it would be referred to as going back to Maryland. <laughs> I still I still always thought of going back to the Pittsburgh area's home. Uh -huh. uh, we we subscribe to the NHL hockey package so we can watch all the Penguins games. Yeah. Uh, I subscribe to the Major League Baseball package so I can watch most of the Pirate games. And uh, if the Steelers are on in this market, then we make that's that becomes like must see TV. We work around it. We DVR things so we can watch the Steelers games. Uh, I subscribe to the local paper on the Internet and get a fair number of story ideas uh, for Penn's River still from things that happen up there. It keeps me tabbed. So, yeah, it's it's it. I don't, I don't suppose I'm unique in this regard, but my wife has also commented that I have a 
not a real heavy Western Pennsylvania accent, but I definitely have one. But when I go back home, if I'm there more than a day or so, she said, you can hear it just start to kick in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I lived, uh, I lived in my parents' house for about a month before my dad died with helping him with hospice care. And when she came up to help out the last couple of weeks, she like I'd gone native. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some interesting, uh, I mean, it's, there's the accent, but there's some interesting phrases like, uh, you know, yin's guys, uh, I'm going to go down to the store and at, and you know, that, that there's some very interesting that you don't see it's, it's, you don't see it outside of that very specific region. I was never much, I, I never said Ewan's or Ian's. I, I have relatives in it. For some reason, I never picked that up. But there are things I do drop, again, that my wife, who's from Michigan, will comment at sometimes that when I need to, what most folks will call, tidy up, we're going to rent up the house. Uh, and if I'm going to go shopping, I say I'm going up street. That huh. means I'm going to run errands. That's what, that's what that means. The, up, up street is a generic, I'm leaving the house and I'm going to do things. I'm going up street. Huh. So I, I'm reading 10 7. And uh, uh, I wasn't able to finish it because I had about 12 books to read on vacation. I didn't get through all of them. Uh, but I'm reading it. And definitely there are people in there that say yins. Yins guys. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not deep enough into it to feel like I got a handle on all of the characters. Uh, but certainly uh, the investigator, Doc, uh, seems to be kind of the core of this book so far would you say he's the core of the series or is it just from book to book or or is everybody kind of have equal billing uh how does that work doc is definitely definitely the he's the main character even though from book to book i write you know from multiple points of view and he may be more or less important in certain books the thing about doc that i use a lot is doc um grew up there and then much like me and, and and my brother who moved to Colorado couldn't find a job. So we, but Doc's case, he joined the army and became an MP. And he spent nine years in the army, a couple of tours in Iraq, and then turned down several opportunities to work for private security companies to come back to Penn's River to be a cop because he wanted to go home. And frankly, he wanted to work for what he refers to as his uncle Stush, who's the chief of police, Stan Napakowski. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stan is not, uh, he's more of a Dutch uncle, but that Stan and uh, and Doc's father, Tom, go back well before Doc was born. So he came back just to do that. And what Doc allows me to do is put a lot of scenes in his point of view to show you someone who grew up there and knows the town like, like nobody else, moved away and got a different perspective. So now he's come back and he still has that love of the town, but he has some perspectives that a lot of people who never mm-hmm. left don't have. So he sees the warts and still loves it. And something that Doc did, I think that you'll appreciate, knowing your background as as a cop, is when Doc came back, of course, he'd been an MP for nine years. They were going to drop him in and make him, you know, in charge of patrol or make him a a detective. And he insisted on spending his first few years in a car Mm -hmm. doing patrol work. And thanks to his uncle Stash, he would occasionally just park the car in the downtown part of town and go out and basically walk a beat for an hour or so at a time if he had if he had some time during the day to reconnect himself with the people in the town. So and he's finding now that's paying off in a small town as a detective. The people still remember when Officer Doc walked the streets, and there are people who would talk to him and won't talk to anybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he definitely has that gravitas. I think you know what you just described was a pretty idealistic person, but he also definitely has some cynicism. Uh, 
um, and uh, and doesn't think too much of the guy that works at the casino, the casino uh, manager there. He's pretty pretty has a pretty jaded view of of, of that guy. Uh, what what made you decide to go with uh, with with uh, an anthology, a procedural anthology? Is just uh, it was a story that came to you, or did you very purposefully decide I'm going to write uh, uh, an anthology or a uh, a series? Series, it, yeah. it, it, it came to me in stages. What really got me was this. Well, oh, this was years ago. Um, for some reason, even though I've never seen the movie, I had the premise of the story of strangers on a train in mind. And I thought, well, what if I did this, which wasn't quite like straight. I mean, the, the, the premise was the same. You get two guys and they're going to get each other to kill each other's wives. But what if something else, you know, broke out of this. So I, you know, I worked with that, but now I need a place to put it. And I had been running a private eye series. It was based in Chicago, but I hadn't lived in Chicago for quite a while. And I didn't have the kind of in-depth knowledge. And I thought if you're going to write a procedural, you really need to have the location down in your mind. And, and mm-hmm. the, the two guys that, that I, you know, that, that really put me onto procedurals in the first place were Ed McBain and Joe Wambaugh. Now, these are two guys who know the cities, even though McBain, you know, made up his soul. It's New York. He knows it. Wombaugh did all his stuff in L.A. And I thought, well, this might be time for me to go back on the old um, writer's advice, write what you know. Mm-hmm. And there was no place I knew better than what I now call Penn's River. So I put them there, and then I had to start to populate the town. Well, I grew up, went to high school there, did some college work there. So I know those people. And one of the things I've made it a point to try to do and I'm sure you've picked up on this so far, is there are a lot of ethnic names in these books mm-hmm. um, because it's a very highly Eastern European, Southern European, German, Irish um, area. So uh, I draw on a lot of that. There's, there's a lot of names of people I went to school with, not their full names, but I'll, I'll just pull a last name out of here, a last name out there. And I'm very careful not to make any of the characters whose last names I use actually be anything at all like the people whose names I stole. Um, but in, in the first couple of books, and I, I've gotten away from it now, and I might, do, I might have to do it again. In the first couple of books, I went so far as to put a pronunciation key in the front of the book so that when you saw a name that you would look at, there, there, there's a character, you probably come across him, um, it's a character in there named um, Z-Y-W-I-C-I-E-L, which is pronounced Zewisiel. And I figured no one was ever going to figure that out. So I put a pronunciation it's Polish. In front. Yes, it is. That's right. Zwiecil is how it would be said yep. in Poland. Yep. yep. Yeah. Well, and, that, and that's the other thing about the area up there. We have a lot of a lot of uh, Polish and Italian names in particular that are the pronunciation has become Pennsylvanianized. Um, mm-hmm. I, I went to school with a girl who spelled her last name P-U-G-L-I-E-S-E, which should be pronounced Puyesi. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in, in my hometown, it's, it's Puglisi. <laughs> and that's how she pronounced it you know i mean that's how the family did it so little, little things like that that i think give it a little bit of a flavor for the area mm-hmm. particularly i'm hoping for the folks who um know the area and what what really made me feel good right after uh the book grind joint came out it's the second one in the series the first one that actually got published i was contacted by a, a, a tv producer about the possibility of making a uh you know a limited run streaming series out of it and he had a Pittsburgh background. His mother had been the anchor on Channel 2 in Pittsburgh on the news for years when I was a kid. I, I knew who she was right away. And he grew up there. And that, that was what caught him right away. He said he liked the story. He said the voices, you know, 
you really have you really have an affinity and an affection for the people like doc has warts and all so doc is kind of my stand in there and you're right when you say that uh in a procedural that the the location is a character unto itself um and and you know for the people when it's based on a real location or a real region for the people that live there it has a certain appeal uh to you know oh yeah i know that corner or i know that empty lot or i know that location and for people who aren't there uh or, or don't know anything about it uh you know the the excitement or the appeal is to get you know it's like meeting someone new you know you get to feel like this isn't just some generic place it's it, it has its own particular uh, character it has its own particular style uh, there's things about it that are different than just generic any town usa uh, and so i think that's one of the appeals of, of a place like Penns river well, one of the things that's been fun is when um when my wife and i go back to visit my parents we haven't been back you know, in a year now but when we would go back um the two of us would start to refer to certain landmarks in those towns by what role they served in the book <laughs> oh, it's up there by the casino. Oh, is that the dumpster where the guy dumped the bloody clothes? Yeah, it's right over there. Well, Doc lives there. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty sweet. <laughs> we'll get back to our conversation with Dana King shortly, uh, but now is the time in the show, and I like to pass on a few book recommendations from the experts. And the experts may be someone who works at a bookstore, particularly those uh, of the crime fiction variety, uh, and also other writers and uh, power readers who really know their stuff. Uh, uh, this episode, let's hear what our guest from December, Gray Bass Knight, would like to recommend. Hi, I'm Gray Bass Knight, author of The Flight of the Fox, published by Down and Out Books. I would just like to mention and recommend a how-to writing book by the great Stephen King. It's called On Writing, a Memoir of the Craft part autobiography and part didactic lesson by the master on how to write, how to plot, how to pace, how to uh, invent characterization, and how to not go down the rabbit hole and lose so much time when you're sitting at the keyboard. On Writing by Stephen King, if you are a writer and if you are an aspiring writer or even a highly accomplished writer, put On Writing, a memoir of the craft by Stephen King at your uh, elbow near your writing space in your study. Uh, I'd like to pass on a recommendation of my own. Uh, if you haven't picked up Charles Salzberg's uh, Second Story Man, uh, I, I finished it uh, about a month or two ago and uh, was very impressed. Uh, I thought he did a good job of having three first-person perspectives all in the same book uh, with very distinct voices and uh, uh, a lot of cat and mouse going on, and you get to see it from uh, both the cat and the mouse's point of view. So, uh, great author. I'm looking forward to reading his uh, Swan series, uh, but you can't go wrong with Second Story Man by Charles Salzberg. Uh, that is out from Down and Out Books. And now let's get back to our conversation with Dana King. Now, tell me about 10-7 specifically. Uh, it looks like there's a, uh, to set it up, it, there's a, uh, in the opening scene there, uh, hopefully this isn't a spoiler, but in the opening scene, uh, there's a murder in the parking lot of a casino. Uh, and uh, Doc is uh, the lead investigator on this. And what else should somebody know before picking that book up? Well, what I wanted to do was kind of trace an investigation with some of the kinds of, of ups and downs that a real investigation gets. Now, I've never been a cop, 
I'm, I'm a big believer in, in not just nonfiction research, but you know, if you're going to read people like McBain and Wamba, they're actually doing some of the research for you. So you kind of get a feel. But in 10 7 in particular, um, there's, a, there's a TV show you, you, you're probably familiar with called Investigation Discovery called um, Homicide Hunter. And it features a former Colorado Springs cop named Joe Kenda, who actually is from the Pittsburgh area originally. And Kenda uh, had a night, like a 95% clearance rate on homicides when he worked in Colorado Springs. That's ridiculous. Yeah, he just solved them. He solved like over, he solved like 400 homicides in his 30 years in Colorado Springs. And watching his show, I would, I would, I would binge him one. I, I would record three or four of them and watch them straight through. And I watched this one. I go, whoa, this is a Penn's River story. So fortunately, I had recorded it, so I just rolled it back and took notes. So a lot of the ups and downs in this story, I changed things so they're unique to Penn's River, and I, and I you know, changed names and everything else. But the, the general premise and the general ups and downs of the case, uh, a lot of it came, came right, out of, uh, right out, of, out of Kenda's story from a Colorado Springs crime. I did a little research on it to make sure I didn't touch anything too closely. I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to rip them off. I'm trying to use an inspiration. But there was one little section in there. I don't know if, don't know if you've gotten that far yet, where um, a guy turns himself in because he hears the police are looking for him. Mm-hmm. That's right where I'm at, actually. Okay. And, and a lawyer shows up. Oh, wait, and just spoiled the scene for me. <laughs> yeah, the, lawyer, the, the lawyer shows up, and the kid's mother um, sent him a lawyer. And and uh, he doesn't want the guy because he hates his mother. <laughs> Get out of here. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I got that. I got the right off the TV show. He doesn't want the guy. Uh, that only well, that's that's the kind of thing that if if you couldn't say it happened in real life, people would tell you you can't. That's bullshit. You can't put that in there. No, nobody yeah, ever, Nobody's that stupid. That, nobody's that vindictive. Yeah. And that's why, and that's why, you know, I mean, you have to look for stuff like that. And it, it, it's a shame because, and, and I know you know this, there's just things that you say, oh, this would be so good, but I can't use it mm-hmm. because nobody would ever believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you almost have to d- not dumb it down, but you have to yeah. uh, uh, decrazy it a little bit to make it fit. Um, so ten seven, it, you know, it's dropping here in, in January. Ha- have you mapped out uh the next one and the next one, or do you wait till you get close or how, you know, how many Penns rivers do you have kind of tentatively planned right now? Well, right now, um, at least, at least I have ideas for up through four books past 10, seven. Um, the book after 10, seven is done and has been for a while down and out has it right now. It's going to come out in 2020. Um, I'm in the process of writing the sixth book, um, which is the one after that one. I'm about eh, probably half or two thirds of the way through the first draft. Uh, I already have what I think is a pretty good story idea for the seventh book, although I must point out the seventh book is now going to be much more difficult to write because you were gracious enough to send me an advanced copy of Charlie 316, which basically has the same inciting incident that my book was going to have. Well, it's a pretty common incident. <laughs> I think you'll be all right using the, uh, the same, well, but I, same type of setup there. I, I actually I actually had was using fortunately you you took your story in a, a completely different direction but yeah mine was was set up to be a a black cop with a with a white um, other person we'll set up so, so we don't give too much away um, but fortunately for me um, you uh, you went a whole different direction from where I was going to go although I do want to take a minute and point out when does Charlie three sixteen drop um, it will drop. Uh, June 10th. 
then I just want to take a minute. And for anybody on the podcast, Charlie 316 is a wonderful book that goes, that covers, you know, everything it has to do with police and politics and, and the media and has a little plot twist in there that I did not see coming and uh, is probably as, about as good a book as I read all year last year. And I'm not saying that just to grease you. Um, uh, I, I, I just finished reading it a few days ago and uh, I love that book. Yeah, you, you wrote a fantastic blurb for it and I, uh, I appreciate that. I, I'm glad you liked it. It was, uh, we had a good feeling about it when we finished it. We felt like it uh, came together nicely. You said that you had a similar scenario in Penn's River number seven. That's probably two, three years out, right? So, yeah, I mean, that, uh, it's not going to be an issue at all. No, it's, it's like one of those things where the books trip over each other. Um, but I, I was, I read the first chapter. And by the way, that first chapter is as well described an action scene in that situation as I've ever read by anybody. But I, I was reading that going, well, what am I going to have to change? Because, <laughs> because, because even though, even though the average reader is not going to necessarily put these two together, the last thing I want to have to do is walk into BoucherCon well that would never happen i got no room to talk i just uh had the grifter song series drop here and start in january and uh, the idea of using multiple authors for an anthology series uh i totally stole from gary phillips uh, so uh i have i have no room to complain uh, i did pay it forward though i had him come on he, he, he is one of the writers for season one. Uh, so coming back around, so you, you've got at least seven Penn's Rivers going on. The other series that you alluded to, uh, set in Chicago, the, the Nick Forte series. Um, when was the last time uh, a Nick Forte novel came out? The last Nick Forte novel was actually last year about this time. It was like January 19th or 20th of last year. It was a book called Bad Samaritan. That was the fifth mm-hmm. Fifth book in, in the Forte series. So are you alternating uh, between the two series? Actually, no. What happened was I, I actually did what you're supposed to do for a change, which I, which I really do, which was once you write your first book, start writing the next one right away in case the first one sells and say, do you have anything else like this? You can say yes. Well, the problem with that was the first Forte book kicked around long enough. I'd written four of them before my agent finally gave up on trying to sell that one. So, I, well, I got four of these in the can. There's no point in doing something else. So I wrote one standalone, and then the idea for Penn's River came to me. So then I wrote four Penn's River books in a row until I got another good Forte idea. So that was what led to the fifth Forte book. And now basically what I'm really doing is no particular rhyme or reason to it. It's whichever I get a story idea, and I stop and think, would this be a better Forte story or a better Penn's River story or a standalone? And so far, they all seem to break out as either Penn's River or Forte. And lately, it's been mostly Penn's River stories that you see appeal to me. So you can basically go with whatever's talking to you. That's one of the great things I love about working with Down and Out is uh, they have given me the freedom to write whatever I feel moves me at the time. Whatever I feel like spending a year or a year and a half on, they're good with it. And I'm able to keep up with their demands because, as I just mentioned, I got so many books on the hard drive. That uh, once they're once they're caught up with me in Penn's River, there's talk of bringing all the uh, Nick Forte books out uh, from mm-hmm. down and out. So ho- hopefully within a few years, I won't have anything self-published anymore. They'll have them all out, which is what I'm shooting for. You know, you mentioned earlier that you uh, pay a lot of attention to what's going on back in Pittsburgh, and uh, uh, when, when I met you in BoucherCon, that was uh, 
that that was the source of some friendly ribbing there is uh you're you're a penguins fan and i'm a big flyers fan and uh i've been sitting here for the the last i don't know 40 minutes or so trying not to say any talk any smack about the the penguins and the thing about it is is i've got no room to talk because my flyers <laughs> suck so bad this year <laughs> well but but frank in fairness you do have gritty well yeah and gritty can <laughs> You don't want to say anything or gritty will knife you in the kidneys. That's for sure. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, the only the only good thing about the Flyers sucking this year is that the Penguins do too. So, um, but I, you know, I, I going back to Pittsburgh a little bit though. When I was there, I did go to a, a couple of Penguins games, and that is a beautiful arena. Um, they're the, the whatever they're calling it now is the Console en- Energy Center. When it's, I went, it's the PPG Paints Arena now. Oh, okay. It's the same arena, just different name. Same, yeah, same building. Yeah, beautiful arena um, and uh, had great experiences with the people there, too. Had p- complete strangers buy me a beer and I was wearing a flyer shirt and uh, like they didn't spit in it or anything. Um, <laughs> and uh, one of the cops, the second game I went to, he had season tickets right up at the top of the second level. And you'd think that would be a like a long ways away from the ice. It sounds like it, but it felt like you're right on top of the ice, even clear up there. Uh, it's a gorgeous arena. Uh, and the same thing was true with the, the uh, was it PNC Park or whatever? The oh, baseball. It, I, I haven't been to PPG Paints Arena yet. Um, but yeah, PNC Park is a gem. I try to get to a game up there every year or so just to go. It's just a beautiful. When it gets dark and the city lights are in the background as you're, watching the baseball game i mean it just doesn't it's just it's really picturesque they, they really know how to do it there uh for sure L- let's swing back around to nick forte for a second though i mean you spent five books you said with the guy and, and that it's set in chicago but who's nick forte i haven't read him yet so uh what do i need to know an interesting thing that i came up with a few years ago nick forte is ben Doherty's first cousin so even though i didn't plan to to relate the two series when I first started writing them by the second Penn's River book um, called Grind Joint. Uh, I bring Forte in as kind of a guest star. Oh, really? Uh, because, yeah, well, because Forte, I always meant for him to be from Western Pennsylvania and from the general area I was from. And then I realized in Grind Joint, I had some things that I wanted the good guys to be able to do. And I had this, what I thought was a really cool ending in mind, but a cop couldn't really do it. And I certainly didn't want Doc to do it because Doc is a guy who has a very firm idea where the line is. But Nick, I realized after after I'd written the four Forte books, without me intending to do so, Forte becomes a darker character as his series progresses. Um, the, the way I explain it from a character point of view is the, the violence and the things that he's been exposed to over the course of the books wears on him and he comes to realize that trying to do things the right way in his case has has too often led to um bad results i mean things that almost get him killed uh, or does get somebody else killed that he was trying to protect because he was doing things a certain way so he has decided now to sort of cut to the chase for lack of a better term that if i should do it this way but if i do it this way i know i'll get the end result i want that's what I'm going to do. So I bring him in for grind joint to take care of that for me. And I'll probably bring him back in again. I, I have another idea to bring him back to, to Pinscher, but I don't want to bring him in too often. He should kind of ruin it. But, but Forte, mm-hmm. he's kind of a classic They're you know, their first person classic, you know, classic PI stories, how he sees things. But the nice thing about 
a PI stories. The, the PI stories, particularly in the first person, they give you an opportunity to explore that character in ways that you can't really do in an ensemble piece because the whole book takes place through his eyes. You, mm -hmm. it, it's tricky because the reader can't know anything he doesn't know because he's going to tell you. But as a, as a very wise friend of mine told me quite a while back, this is one of the great things you can do about characterizing in, in a first person story, like a PI story, is you don't have to spend a lot of time telling people what he's like. They can tell what he's like by what he mentions in the book because those are the things he notices. And that tells you a lot about him. So it, it, it saves a lot of stuff there. He's very close with it. He's, he's a divorced father who's very close to his daughter. And um, in, in the, the last book I read, in Bad Samaritan, we kind of came to a, a crossroads with Forte where his darkness, the things he gets involved in are going to cost him his, his, uh, his business, his, his, his uh, investigative business may be falling apart. And, uh, and he's starting to realize the only person in the world who's really keeping him connected to what life should be is his 11-year-old daughter. And that's too great a burden to place on a child that age. So I, I, that's one of the reasons why right now he's kind of on hold because I need to find a story that allows me to go from there. That is one of the drawbacks sometimes. If you write a series where the characters tend to evolve, you just can't go back and just write one from scratch again. You have to take right. into consideration. Well, I've already had him do all these things. He's not the same character in Bad Samaritan that he was in A Small Sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I can't pretend he is. Great titles, by the way. Um, so it sounds like you have to find a story that uh, allows him to lighten up a little bit, basically. Well, it's, well, it's got to be one of two things. It's either going to have to allow him to lighten up or it's going to have to let him hit bottom so he can rebound. And that's why I'm hung up trying to find a story. Uh, you know, we've been talking about BoucherCon a lot, I guess, because it was uh, like a shared experience there and where we met. But uh, so one of the things I, I saw that I thought was really cool was uh, I went to one of your panels and I was sitting at a table with your wife, uh, Corky. And I noticed that when you would lean forward to talk in the microphone, you were over-modulating because you were so close to the microphone. And then I noticed you were looking right at Quirky, and she was telling you back up, back, back, back up. And then she gave the thumbs up when you were at the right distance where you were super like good to hear, but you weren't popping the P's and hissing the S's and, you know, and, and, and so forth. And, and that happened several times over the course of that, uh, what, 30, 40 minutes that those panels last. And the thing that impressed me about it so much wasn't just that you had this system in place. It was just how effortlessly you read each other. Like I knew it was going on because I was sitting right next to her. I don't think anybody else in the entire room knew. So has that always been the case? She's been going to, uh, Let's see. I, that's right. The first Boxer Con she went to was my first panel was in Cleveland. So, you know, she, she's always has been at my panels. And, yeah, she's been very good about that. It's great. I mean, and, and she enjoys it. It's, it's a nice way to make her part of the panel. We're, we're, we're together pretty much all the time, except for, you know, except for the bar for the most part, uh, all through the week. But, you know, once you get up there on the panel, I'm up there by myself. And it's a nice way to show that we are a team and to help to involve her in what's going on with the panel. It sounds like she reads a lot though too so she's like your peer as a reader even though she's not a writer well what 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 she does what we do what we do a lot is um every time i finish the first draft of a chapter i read it aloud to her oh wow and she'll make comments on it because then she knows what's come before and she knows how things are going and then i take the book after it's all done like that and i go do however many drafts i'm going to do 
But then when I've done the last draft, I'm doing what's essentially a proofread. The proofread is also allowed to her. So she, and she knows enough about it um, to be able to say things like, well, you stumbled over that sentence. A word was probably not right. You know, if it had been, if it's something I stumbled over reading it, seeing how I probably read the damn thing 10 or 12 times and I wrote it, well, then the reader's eye is not going to flow right through it. Mm-hmm. You might want to see about revising that one or, you know, little, little things like that. But yeah, she's, she's enormously helpful. The two big things she's helpful with are she'll be able to say, I, I don't, I don't see, you didn't set that up properly. I don't remember anything about her. Who is this character? It's been a while since you mentioned this character. Mm-hmm. I don't remember who that was. So I have to remind it. Any other thing she's great with is female characters. You know, she'll come back and say, well, I, I don't I don't see this particular, you know, she, we, we don't deal with a generic woman, but at the same time, she kind of pays attention to female characters and will say, I don't think Sharon would do this. Mm-hmm. I don't think Sharon would say that. She wouldn't respond yeah. that way. And then I could say, well, you know, we're writing genre fiction. I kind of want her to respond that way. She goes, okay, here's what you have to do to set that up. Mm-hmm. So it does make sense within Sharon's character. She's mm-hmm. great for that. It's nice to have a first reader, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Dana. I mean, uh, you're one of the, the coolest people I met at BoucherCon. I was pretty excited to get a chance to interview you, and uh, I'm enjoying 10.7. I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. Frank, thank you for having me. It's, it's been as much fun as I hoped it would be. I, you know, I have the same feelings about meeting you, and I'm looking forward to uh, getting together with you next year and and, uh, and talking about procedurals because, you know, with, with your background, I'm going to learn a lot more from you than you can learn from me. Well, I'll tell you, Dallas is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, We will talk to you soon then. You betcha. All right, folks. Well, there is Dana King in a rather large nutshell. Uh, Great conversation. He's a great guy, very personable, uh, fun to be around. I really enjoyed meeting him and getting to spend some time with him at BoucherCon uh, last uh, September. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing him again in Dallas. Uh, If you like... My River City novels, uh, the the, uh, ensemble cast, third-person, multiple-viewpoint sort of uh, police procedural. Uh, Think Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue, Southland, that that sort of genre. Uh, Then you will also like Penn's River. About the only real difference, uh, aside from writing style, obviously, is uh, the setting is uh, East Coast rather than West Coast, and it's a small town rather than mid-sized city. Uh, but uh, outside of that, uh, there's a lot of similarities, and if you dig my stuff, uh, you'll you'll dig his. Uh, if you're listening to this because you're a fan of Dana King, then the reverse is also true. <laughs> Feel free to give River City a try for the same reasons. All right, uh, on our next episode, uh, we are going to talk to Nick Kolakowski in an open and shut episode and his new book, The Main Bad Guy, uh, and that will drop uh, tomorrow. Uh, so, uh, get your Dana King binging in and then, uh, you can finish it with dessert of, uh, Nick Kolakowski. And then, uh, after that, the very next day, uh, we will see another open and shut episode. This one featuring JD Rhodes, uh, who wrote episode two of a grifter song called people like us. Uh, and so with, uh, with that dropping, uh, on Wednesday, you will be caught up and so will I. Then uh, uh, we'll move into February. 
I want to say thanks to Danny King for coming on the show, Gray Bass Knight, for making a great recommendation. And of course, as always, uh, Eric Campbell and the folks at Down Out Books for sponsoring the show. Uh, and I want to thank you, the listener, for uh, tuning in and for uh, sticking by me when uh, I had that uh, unfortunate flu. I'll be back sooner than normal, and we will pick things up where we left off. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.